Well, we come this morning to the conclusion of Jesus' magnificent prayer in John 17. So the gospel reading is the text. These are the very last words, the very last words that Jesus will say to his disciples in John's gospel before his execution. He's prayed for himself. He's prayed for this immediate band of disciples. And now he prays for us. The church built on the foundation of the apostles. So this is one of the few places in scripture where, if you will, Christ has you. He has us directly in his vision. And so we'll make three points here. They're on the back inside of your bulletin. Unity, glory, and the promise. So first, the unity. So this is John 17, beginning of verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. He doesn't leave the apostles behind, but he's praying for them and for the church throughout history, which embraces the message of the apostles, the apostolic gospel. And with his final words, Of all the things he could ask, he asked this, that all of them may be one. He prays for unity. He prays for the church of this age and the church of all ages to be in union with the church of the apostles through the apostolic message. Now, this is a breathtaking prayer. I mean, clearly this is something of supreme importance to the Lord Jesus. I'm not sure I know anyone for whom this is of supreme importance. Certainly Protestants as a whole don't take this as a thing of supreme importance. I don't know anyone who at the end of their deathbed pilgrimage is praying this. So I want to say a couple things about the unity. The first thing about it is it's, notice, it's Trinitarian. It's Trinitarian. What I mean here is this unity, this unity is not easy to manage because it's rooted in and it's modeled on, it partakes of this intimate, ineffable, ungraspable, mysterious unity that is the unity of our God, the unity of the Holy Trinity. Look at verse 21. My prayer is that all of them may be one Father. Now get this. Just as. There's the model. There's the standard. Just as. You are in me, and I am in you. Right? Our first instinct would probably be a good one if we thought, what can that possibly mean? You see it again in verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. Something is going on here beyond, uh, I hope they get along better. Look at verse 23 that they may be brought to complete unity. 
The Father and the Son have this absolute unity, eternal in the Godhead. Right? There's no shred of division or disagreement or alienation between them. Right? They're one in a way that human persons cannot possibly be one. Right? They are numerically one. They share the identical nature. They're, it's like having two balloons that have the exact same set of air molecules in them. That's how the Father and the Son are one. It's some mysterious thing. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Jesus' prayer is such that their unity is the basis or the pattern for overcoming estrangement and division in the church. How so? How so? Well, it's simple, I think, even if it's beyond our grasp. We already saw it in John 14. When the Spirit comes to you, Jesus and the Father come to you. You are inhabited by the Holy Trinity. You are the habitation of God. So Jesus says the same thing here. After praying that the church would be one, even as he and the Father are one, then he says this. This is the middle of verse 21. May they also be in us. So the church lives in the Holy Trinity, and the Holy Trinity lives in the church. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, Father. The Father's in the Son, and the Son through the Spirit is in you, is in us together. I mean, this reality right here, as difficult as it might be to understand it, this is the essence of what the church is. It is the Holy Trinity's place of dwelling. The Holy Trinity dwells in us. We inhabit the Holy Trinity. Everything else the church does, largely scaffolding. This is the inner essence and substance of what it is to be Christian. The church lives, moves, has its being in the life of the Holy Trinity. It's an astonishing thing. And if it weren't true, there'd be no hope for Christian unity. Now, this is difficult, I know. It could seem a little highbrow, but it's not. Remember, I've mentioned this in this series before. Sinclair Ferguson said that Jesus must think that the Trinity is very important because he's got this little band of disciples, and the world is crashing in on them, and he spends an inordinate amount of time in his last hours, on stuff like, I am in them, and you are in me, and they are in us. He wants to talk about the triune God inhabiting you, and you living in the triune God as he's being led to slaughter. Now, I think we could see this from another angle, and this here perhaps may be easier to draw comfort from. What we are speaking about here, when we talk about the church having this kind of unity, we we are saying that the love which the Father and the Son share in the Godhead is the very love by which we are loved. 
right? God doesn't love you just because he's benevolent or he has pleasant dispositions or he's kind of a, quote, a loving person. He loves you out of the love that he is. So don't, don't let this glide by. If this were not in black and white in the text, nobody would believe it. As the Father loves the Son, so he loves us. That's what Jesus says here. So he loves you. So he loves the church. Is that not the best news you could possibly hear? Is it not infinitely greater than all the bad news that you fear? As the Father loves the Son, so he loves you. And the unity being prayed for here by our Lord is so that the world would see that the Father loves us as he loves the Son. That's what Jesus says. In other words, it's meant to make Trinitarians out of the world. So you could not be, right? You could not, it's not possible, right? There are no circumstances. There are no contingencies that depend on your performance. There are no alternative universes where you could be loved more than you already are. It's inconceivable because you are loved by the Father with the love the Father has for the Son. With the very love that God is. And that love creates a unity which is made visible to the world. So the second thing about this unity is that it's apostolic. It's Trinitarian, it's apostolic. It's given already by Christ to the apostles. That's what I mean here. Look at verse 22. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Again, I think we always have to struggle with some of the things Jesus says to kind of make sure we're not numb and we're not overly familiar. Glory. Now get that. The glory that the Father and the Son share. Glory. Not administrative skill. Right? Not institutional mergers, not bureaucracy, glory is what creates this unity. The radiance that flows out of the unmeasured depths of the being of God. What, O Lord, we might ask, is your grand plan to heal a fragmented Christendom? What's your strategy for ecumenical reunion? Here's my slide. It has one word on it. Glory. What kind of a plan is that? That's unsatisfactory to many of us, is it not? We need some detail, Lord. Here's the plan, Jesus says. The glory of the Father revealed in the Son, poured forth in radiance onto the church, given to the apostles. What? That's going to unite the... Yes, That means there's already a kind of given unity, right? A given glory, which can't be erased or destroyed. Paul calls it the unity of the Spirit, and you heard it from Ephesians 4 this morning in the New Testament lesson. We have to maintain, Paul said, the unity of the Spirit while we seek to attain 
Maintain the unity while we attain to the unity of the faith. While we strive to become one in faith and practice in life. And it is going to be the outpoured glory of God that can bring this to pass. And in light of a prayer like this, especially when you understand when this prayer is prayed by Jesus, we would have to say that the church's great sin is that her divisions, right? her schisms, her rifts, they all obscure and they mangle this given glory, this unity. Right? Jesus says earlier in this prayer, I have given them your name. Here he says, I have given them glory. And our divisions obscure that mystery, that radiance from the world. So this given unity, Jesus says, comes through the apostolic gospel, right? He starts the prayer by saying he's praying for all who believe the apostles' message. So the unity here has a shape, right? It doesn't, it it has content. It's unity in the truth. It's not a bunch of people getting together saying, let's believe the least common denominator of things we can, and then call that unity. How could it be that? It's unity in the fullness of the glory that is God revealed in the apostolic teaching. And the third thing about this unity, and here we move closer to home, I think, perhaps, is that it's evangelical. That is, this unity witnesses to the world. It testifies. In fact, it does more than testify. Jesus says it persuades the world. Right? And thus we know that the unity cannot merely be invisible. Right? It doesn't exist in the ether. It won't do to say we're all one up there somewhere in Jesus. This is unity which is seen and which is noticed and which startles. It shows itself in a sort of tangible, palpable way. And the world will notice such a thing. Look at verse 21. Jesus prays that the church might dwell in the Trinity so that, two little words again, sort of like just as was earlier, so that. That's the direct connection. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That should sound like a bomb exploding in your head. This unity is like a bomb going off in the world. And the world notices. And and not only does the world believe the gospel, the world believes the Father sent the Son. So if we ask ourselves this question. Why does the world not believe the gospel? Why is the gospel declining in the West? There's a whole cottage industry about that. You can get books up to the ceiling and beyond. Right? Everyone's got their answers. Everyone knows the story. Or at least they think they can narrate it. Right? Maybe bad, declining morality higher criticism of the Bible. Maybe we can blame it all on the Enlightenment. Right? 1757 or something. That's where it all went back. Lots of big social technological changes, corrupt educational institutions. Take your pick. Take your pick as to why the world does not believe the gospel. Jesus does not give any of those answers. 
Jesus says, look, if you're going to proclaim the one God, the mystery of the unity of the triune God, and you're going to preach his gospel, a gospel of peace and reconciliation and unity, and you're going to declare in public that there's one body and one spirit and one hope and one calling and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all. And then you're going to live in 30,000 competing and fractured denominations. Of course nobody's going to believe you. You know, there's a little, little, it's a big fat book. It's a hardcover book. It's about this fat. Now, in general, I'm a pretty big fan of fat books. This one I don't like. It's called The Handbook of denominations in the United States of America. That's not a good thing, right? You don't want that to be a fat book. You want that to be a pamphlet. It's amazing, in the light of this text, that anyone believes the gospel. Jesus is saying people will not believe that the Father sent the Son if the church is divided. We say, ah, that's not true. We'll just keep working really hard. Division in the church breeds atheism in the world. And there will be no conversion of the world till there's a healing of the church. I don't see how that can be avoided in this text. But there's more than this. Look at verse 23. Jesus prays that we be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. Unity will convince the world of the gospel. And the world will know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. You're tempted to ask, is there nothing that the unity of the church can't affect? It can make the world believe the incarnation. It can make the world believe the Father sent the Son. And it can make the world say, get this, these people here are loved with the love that the Father has from the Son. You know, we have lots of reasons that we think, that we proffer for why the world does not believe the Christian claims. Jesus says, if you were one like this, they would believe everything. I mean, you could dismantle the whole industry of apologetics if this kind of unity existed. Jesus has said this more than once. All the way back in chapter 13, he said, if we loved one another as he has loved us, all people would know that you're my disciples. And here he says, If we're united in the love of the Holy Trinity, the world will know the Father sent the Son. It's staggering, really. And it's not obvious. I mean, you would expect Jesus to say, the church's missionary activity, sending, praying, giving, going, working, will convince the world of the gospel. But he doesn't say that. As one commentator put it, the biggest barriers to effective evangelism, according to this prayer of Jesus, 
are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel, but realities like gossip, insensitivity, criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, self-preoccupation, greed, and every other form of lovelessness. These, he continues, are the squalid enemies of effective evangelism, which render the gospel fruitless. I think that's right. The unity of the church, right, in the love of the Holy Trinity, that living, visible unity is the most potent and persuasive weapon in the arsenal of the church in her mission for world evangelism. And for the most part, we've just laid it down. And we're happy to lay the weapon down. In fact, according to this prayer, that weapon is sufficient. Right? If it's not the only weapon we need, it is certainly the chief weapon we need, according to Jesus. You know, evangelism, like everything else in the Christian life, is being before it's doing. It has to do with being before doing. That's why Jesus says, if you just lived in the unity of the Trinitarian life together, you could convince the world. If someone presented me a hypothetical choice, It's hypothetical, because we still have to do both. But you listen to this prayer and you think, what if I had a choice between all the missionary labor of the church and healing the fractured divisions of Christendom? Which one would I choose to do? Which one would I dissolve? Which one would be more effective and fruitful? There's almost no one that's oriented toward the healing, the divisions part. So the second, that's the unity. The second main point here is the glory. Jesus ends this long farewell address. And he ends it just the way he started it at the beginning in John 14. Right? He said, I was going to comfort your hearts. I'm going to go away and prepare a place. I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you to myself that you might be with me. You may remember that's how this upper room discourse started. He yearns to consummate this bond that he has with us now. I mean, how could it be otherwise, right? If you think about this, there's a deep logic. Sometimes when you read these chapters in John's gospel, you think, and it's it's good to ask yourself this, why does Jesus' mind move from A to B to C to D to E like this? And you'll, you'll realize that often our minds don't quite work that way. But how could it be otherwise here, given the Trinitarian intimacy and love of this passage? Of course, this sort of God will want his bride to be with him. Jesus started by saying that, and he's going to end with it. Right at the very end, he orients the church to the consummation, to the coming glory. Look at verse 24. Father, I want... This is his desire before the cross. I want those you have given me to be with me 
where I am and to see my glory. I've given them glory so they can be one. And what I really desire, Father, is that they would be with me in glory. This is the language of love. It's the language of God's embrace and desire for you. This is the desire Jesus has for you. He wants his bride to be where he is, and he is in heavenly glory. This is Jesus praying for the resurrection of the dead. And this language here, as I said, it's the language of yearning. Right? It's, it's a language of love. It's also the language of sight. Notice what he says. I want them to see my glory. Right? This is what the church has from ancient times called the beatific or the happy vision. When we see the glory of God in Christ face to face. Now, Paul tells us, now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. Now we walk by faith, then by sight. And Jesus prays for the then. He's prayed a lot for the now. But at the end of the prayer, he turns to the then. And he says, Father, I want my chosen ones, the ones you've given me, I want them to see me face to face. He's yearning for this unity to be perfected. And this language of sight... In the consummation, it's picked up by the same writer, by the same John in 1 John chapter 3, where he says this. One of the most wonderful passages in the New Testament, by the way, on our hope. He says, Beloved, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him. As he is. No more seeing through a glass darkly. Jesus prays to the Father. That's the glory. And then very briefly, the promise. Jesus makes a promise to the Father in verse 26. I, will, I have made known, I've made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known. So he's, he's saying here, I am going to continue as the Lord of the church to refresh and renew the revelation of your glory to the church. Right? This is why Scripture is sometimes difficult for us, because Jesus stands over it and breathes upon it and speaks to us through it, and he cannot be tamed or contained. And so Scripture meets us as a book which often has a quarrel with us, right? which is often strange to us, which, would, which can never be mastered, but that's the Lord renewing the glory and renewing the revelation. And he makes this promise to the Father and, the, and why does he do it? Well, the reason he does it is given at the end of the text, and it's really a summary. He says, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. Right, why did Jesus inspire Holy Scripture and give it to the church? So that the Father could love you with the love he has for the Son. Right, when you cut this off, what happens, right? If you cut the Bible off from this Trinitarian love, you end up with a bunch of rules, a bunch of moralizing stuff to do. Sure, there's a kind of reference to God back there, but it's thin. Right, Jesus says, I will renew and refresh this revelation so that the love you have for me, Father, will be in them and I will be in them. 
So two, two quick things as I close. They should be obvious by now. The first one is the church. And the second one is God. Can anyone read this passage and think, I really love Jesus, but I don't see much of a need for the church? It's a little baffling, right? You get this a lot. But the church is on our Lord's heart to the bitter end. But not just the church, right? It's unity, which he thinks is an unspeakably beautiful thing, a thing with the power to convert the world. I mean, do you know what the most important thing about the unity of the church is in this text? It's this. Jesus prayed for it. And he prayed for it in this situation and in this context. Have you prayed for the unity of the church? I think it's something we forget. Let me challenge you. Do not accept the fragmentation. Do not accept the status quo. Right? It's just the water we swim in, so we all accept it. Let me tell you, I do not accept it. I do not accept that there are Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists and independent Bible churches and Catholics and Orthodox and dozens of others. I don't accept it. You shouldn't accept it either. But nobody stands up at the General Assembly and says, Oh Lord, we know that the very existence of our denomination is illegitimate. Right? Nobody starts praying like that. Well, some of these denominations have got to be illegitimate, brothers and sisters. Yes, they're all we've got. We work with a broken situation. God works through them, all that stuff. But they shouldn't all be. So, Jesus prayed. You should pray the way he prays. And pray for Westminster's unity. You know, divisions and schisms exist Primarily within local congregations, not often between congregations or denominations. They exist inside the church. The whole problem at Corinth is inside the congregation there are divisions. Pray for Westminster's unity. We take a vow as members to pursue and study the unity of the church. We can do that by praying with Jesus. And that means praying prayers the way Paul prays in Ephesians 3. And here I'll encourage you, if you haven't done it or if you haven't done it for a while or you've forgotten, pick up the prayer sheet for November on the table. And the two leading prayers in there are from Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. And in Ephesians 3, Paul prays that the church would be filled up to all the fullness of the life of God. He prays a Trinitarian prayer. He prays for the life of the Holy Trinity to flood into the church. So the second thing, finally, here is God. A.W. Tozer makes the point that a hundred pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. I hope that's true. I know we have a lot of musicians here. It seems like it should be true. And the point I want to make from that is this. Unity will not occur by seeking directly to be in tune with each other. You have to be in tune with the main fork, right? 
It's being tuned as Jesus is here to God himself, to the Holy Trinity, for it is that glory which produces unity. Right? The triune God himself is to be our chief passion because it's the passion of our Lord's heart hours before his passion. Jesus simply assumes, notice there's no detailed agenda from Jesus, is there? He simply assumes that a people who live in the Holy Trinity, in whom the Holy Trinity lives, will be united. He would diagnose, I suspect, every problem of division in the church the exact same way. Somebody is failing to live in communion with the Holy Trinity and allow the Holy Trinity to commune with the inner depths of their own being. So we start with ourselves. We start right here. We can't fix all the big problems of denominations. I understand that. Nor am I suggesting that they're all illegitimate, my prayer notwithstanding. Right? We work with what we have in broken situations. But we don't accept the brokenness permanently because our Lord didn't. But we start here. We start with our own hearts and our own affections. So I charge you, be filled up with the life of the triune God. Love one another. Love one another. And thus you can take a small step here, but a real one, in persuading the world that the Father sent the Son and he loves you with the love he has for the Son. Amen. Amen.